Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Father-Son Packers podcast, your source for Packers news, notes, and analysis. My name is Tommy, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, my dad, Matt. Dad, how are you doing? All right, we're into getting really started in the offseason now in terms of we don't even have to go off the rails for this episode to be extraordinarily thick. Yes. Folks, we are here today. This is going to be our big defensive episode. So today, we are going to be going through all of the players on defense, given a little few interesting numbers, some stats that we found interesting in terms of our research of how their years went. We're going to be bouncing off of each other, how we feel like each player performed, how we feel like each position group performed. And then at the end, we're going to be talking about, you know, which of these players might be with us in 2024 with the Packers, which players might be moving on to new teams. And we're going to be talking about what we think the biggest needs on each team is. But the bulk of the episode is going to be evaluating the defense in 2023 and how we felt like each player played. And so that's what's going to make this a really thick episode. We got a lot of players to talk about, whether it's players that played almost 100% of snaps or players that only played a handful. Although the ones that only played a handful, we're going to not spend as much time on, especially the ones that only played like a few. But anyway, we got a lot to talk about today, so we're not going to get into too much. But before we get into anything, just wanted to pitch a couple of things. If you like what you hear here today, come give us a follow at Father Son Packer on Twitter. We tweet when we have new episodes out. We tweet articles by other Packers content creators that we find interesting. We tweet out Packers news uh, related uh, uh, announcements, stuff like uh, free agency we're going to be tweeting out through. We tweet out videos that we find interesting for Packers. Uh, pretty much, you know, stats we find interesting when we're doing this research. One-stop shopping for everything Titletown. And then subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We're going to be doing an episode every single week uh, over the offseason. So don't turn that dial. We're going to be talking a lot about the draft coming up. It is our favorite time of year. I think it's my favorite thing for the NFL is draft season. I think it's even better than the football season itself. The only problem I have is it's a little <laughs> Especially too short. some years. <laughs> Especially some years. But, um, but yeah, we'll be looking at, uh, we'll, we'll go more into what's going on. The senior, senior bowl already happened. We got the combine. We'll have player visits. Yeah, we're going to be talking about everything. Uh, we still need to talk about the Senior Bowl. We need, still need to talk about our thoughts on players. We're going to be starting up Mock Draft Mondays this coming week on Twitter. So once again, at Father Son Packer there. Oh, and then also we put all our episodes out on YouTube. So if you want to subscribe to us there, it would really help our numbers. But Dad, we got no time to waste. So let's get into it. But before we start talking about the defense, just a couple of announcements. Uh, more Packers-related announcements. The first is that Tom Grossi, Packers superfan, Today was the NFL award ceremony and he won NFL fan of the year. So shout out to him. He is an awesome representative of the Packers fan base community. Uh, couldn't have happened to a better guy. You know, it's a, he, he's an awesome dude on YouTube. Uh, his content is great. Um, he's really good. You know, he raised over half a million dollars for St. Jude's this off season. So very well deserved for him. Good job representing the Packers community and good job representing people named Tom out there. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, former Packer Julius Peppers was inducted into the hall of fame tonight. So that's exciting for him. And then we also had news. I'm just kind of burning through these because we do have a lot to talk about. Um, but the Packers are officially starting their search for a new CEO as Mark Murphy will, He's stepping down next offseason in 2025 as he ages out and they are, you know, he is forced by the bylaws of the Packers to move on. Um, Dad, any comments on any of the three of those? Uh, or should we get into some more, you know, Packers on the field related stuff? Um, let's just jump forward because, yeah, we got a lot of stuff to cover. I want to say just, yeah, Tom Grossi, that was awesome. Um, that was pretty cool. The whole, the whole uh, raising money beyond, I think, well, way beyond his uh target 
as he visited all the um, league stadiums. Yeah, it's super, super awesome. You know, it's always good for, you know, these things to go to, you know, Packers fans, you know, good to represent. Um, but Dad, let's start talking about the defense. We, we, boy, do we have a lot to talk about. Before we even get into the players, though, we have learned since our last episode last week that the defensive staff under Jeff Halfley, new DC, has been filled out a little bit. Um, before we get to them, though, just wanted to talk about a few assistance that moves that have been made on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, and that is that Sean Mannion, former Rams, Vikings and Seahawks quarterback, um, has been hired. He is he has retired from his playing career in the NFL to take a position with the Packers. He will be some kind of offensive assistant. The official role has not been announced yet, um, but it sounds like he's going to be working with the quarterbacks and the passing game. Um, it's making Vikings fans very mad. So that's a win in my book. Um, and then the other thing is that Tom Clements will be staying on as the quarterbacks coach, which is awesome because he's done some great work with Jordan loves development in the past couple of years. And there was speculation he might retire this coming season. So that's two great moves in the quarterback and passing game, um, area. And then miles white will be the new assistant wide receiver coach. He was previously at Miami of Ohio as their receiver coach. He's coached there. Stephen F. Austin and SMU was actually an undrafted free agent signing of the Packers back in 2013. He's still very young. He's only 33 years old. He's considered to be an up and comer. And per Zach Cruz, uh, he actually worked for two months with the Packers staff already in 2023 as part of the Bill Walsh diversity coaching fellowship. So he has experience with the staff. Dad, any thoughts on any of those offensive moves? I think the big one there is Clements being back, right? Yeah, I think it's huge that they're able to keep Clemens for another year to try to continue Love's development. And you might, you know, the thing that Mannion is sort of the the, the Air QB guru in, in training, uh, yeah. right? Try to get there while while Clemens is still there as well. And uh, Just White as download, an assistant. Download Clemens's brain into Mannion's <laughs> young, youthful body, and then we're just going to be good. Perfect. Oh, so we're, we're talking some like sci-fi consciousness transplant is what's actually going to be going on. Exactly. In, uh, in Green Bay, I, this, I think that's this a perfect. That's a perfect plan. Um, but yeah, some some interesting moves along the offensive side of the ball. But let's move to the defense. We've touched on offense as much as we want to in this episode. We'll be talking about it a lot next week when we do our offensive overview. But just wanted to stay on those news items while they were still fresh. But like I was saying earlier, Packers defensive staff has been filled out a little bit, Dad. Let's start with, you know, we have Jeff Halfley as the DC. We talked all about him and his resume as the defensive coordinator last week. You can go check in our in the feed if you want all the details about him and what he's bringing from Boston College to here. Um, but, Dad, the Packers are retaining two defensive coaches under him, as officially announced initially, I believe, by Tom Silverstein of Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Uh, Rebrovich uh, previously was the pass rush coach last year, has been kind of upgraded to a D-line coach in, like, pretty much taking over the entire defensive line it sounds like it's not been made official yet but it sounds like that's going to be the move for him and then ryan downard uh, is going to be retained as the dbs and secondary coach same role he was in last year and he has experience with halfley he was halfley's assistant db coach when halfley was the defensive backs coach in cleveland so there is some familiarity there so those are going to be the two coaches uh, at the top level, at least in terms of assistance, um, being retained under the Packers staff. And then the rest are going to be new. And Dad, I think you and I are both, we both think it's a good idea to get some fresh blood, some fresh ideas. And I th I just think it's probably for the best. Not that any of the coaches that are being moved on from, whether that's Kirk Olivadotti, Jerry Montgomery, uh, Greg Williams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were necessarily bad at their jobs. But a lot of them had been around a long time. Montgomery, for instance, had been around since Dom Capers was here. 
And I think, you know, over the years, the defense has been, you know, underperforming. And I think a shakeup was probably necessary, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think this actually is what we were both hoping for in terms of getting new assistants. And a mistake I think they made when they hired Barry, you know, another mistake when they hired Barry, was not having a change in staff with a new coordinator. Yeah. And basically, I don't know what he whether he wanted input, but he basically had no discernible input in his in his own staff as a defensive coordinator when he got here. Yeah, and there were some changes from his first to his second year, like moving on from Jerry Gray and giving Downer that position. But it's a good point that I think it was just time for some fresh ideas and some fresh faces. And it sounds like they're going to be having a fresh scheme. Before we get into talking about these assistants, Dad, Thomas Silverstein reported that they're kind of hiring these guys with the thought of moving to a 4-3 system. I know that these days, 80%, and even Brian Gudikins talked about this in his presser, it's a 4-2-5 world. You're living in nickel most of the time. I think teams play nickel on like 80% of downs. But one in five downs is still a decent amount. Like, like people talk about that, like, oh, you only play like base like 20% of the time. It's like 20% of the time is still usually like multiple like multiple plays per drive that's a decent piece of the pie even if it's not the majority what do you think about switching to 4-3 as a base how do you feel about it in terms of the personnel we have I guess just what are your brief thoughts on that because I do think it's at least something we want to touch on before we start talking about last year I guess I think there are a couple things the um, we have big enough edges generally to play a a 4-3 we've you know I guess starting with Petten, we he, the Packers have been going with these like 270 pounds or so edges rather than you know 240 pound edge rushers, so they can fit either four three or three four, and, and a lot of them like played with their hand in the dirt in college. Gary, Lucas Van Ness, and I think even Preston played with their hand in the dirt in college, and so I think they can convert to that to play in a four three just fine. The only guy who might be a little bit of a tweener in this regard is. Um, Anibari, who maybe will become more of like a pass rush specialist or something. The other thing it does is it gives more resources to the linebackers, maybe get better coverage of the middle of the field. Um, And we'll talk about what we might need in that regard. um, When we start talking about the draft and free agency. Uh, Right. Yeah, because we're going to have a lot to talk about. But yeah, no, I 100% agree with you about the edges. And even Enigbari, I think he's like 260 pounds, 250, like 255 to 260 pounds. So it's not like he's like one of these really small speed rushers. He's still got some size to him, but not as big as those other guys for sure. I think it also could be good for Brooks and Wooden. Could see some snaps with them as on the edge. We saw Carl Brooks in college was an edge rusher. Uh, Colby Wooden, you know, I think at times struggled as an interior defensive lineman in a 3-4 scheme. Just he's a little light. And I think playing out on maybe as a 4-3 defensive end might be even better for him. The one thing I'm, you know, the two things actually is, you know, a little bit more like you're going to need a little more from your safeties. And then it is kind of hard. Truly good linebackers can be hard to find in the NFL. You saw it with the Philadelphia Eagles. I mean, they were starved for linebackers this year. They were bringing in anyone and everyone they could. Saw it with the Packers this year, you know. I thought McDuffie played pretty well, but Eric Wilson struggled when they had to go to him. And those were just like, you only had to play two linebackers in base sets. So I think they're going to need to explore that linebacker spot. Unfortunately, not a great free agent class for linebackers, in my opinion. We'll be talking about that going forward. But Though, though Goody like, raised the possibility of like trading draft capital for 
players. I don't think I don't think that's really <laughs> I, I, that, that that may skeptical. give him like you know he might break out in hives if he tries to trade I was draft capital say, for for players. I know he his skin started to itch like he didn't feel right saying that, but I I guess he did. So it's on it's on the table. Um, but yeah, and so I like the idea of switching to a four three just in summary because. We've seen, you know, these teams are attacking the middle of the field relentlessly these days. The middle of the field uh, I, is just a more valuable place. <laughs> is is the new boundary? <laughs> the middle of the field is like the most valuable place to attack because it opens up the field for yards after catch. It opens up for more explosive plays. Um, it's harder to cover. And so having more bodies there in base just feels like a good idea to me. Um, so I am totally on board with the 4-3. You see... You see you see you can have a good defense with anything like San Francisco's defense the past few years. 4-3, very solid. The Ravens' defense this year, though, was a 3-4, one of the best defenses we've seen. It's all about just executing. So really, you can have a great defense either way, but I like the change of pace to a 4-3. I think it will be good for the Packers in the long and short run. But, Dad, we're already getting a little long on time, and we haven't even started talking about these coaches. Um, right, and I think a, 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 the big thing that I think a lot of people are excited about is not the scheme but the attitude yes and the attitude is i think most most aptly represented by packers new linebacker <laughs> coach anthony campanile he is actually going to be both the run game coordinator and the linebacker coach um he's coming over from the dolphins where he was a linebacker coach a lot of these numbers and uh information polls i got courtesy of paul brettel's article on his Substack. it's a really good follow you should go check it out um it's available i think his link is in his twitter bio at paul underscore brettel on twitter um, but he coached the Dolphins linebackers since 2020 across two different coaching defensive coaching staffs. Before that, he was the linebacker coach at Michigan in 2019. And before that, he was the co-defensive coordinator at Boston College in 2018. Uh, no overlap with Halfley, but you see there is at least some, you know, play calling background in his uh, in his resume. Um, the Dolphins were 14th in EPA per rush this last year and 14th in rushing success rate, uh, which isn't, you know, necessarily terribly impressive on its face. But when you consider the fact that they're running that Vic Fangio too high system that is, you know, not putting a lot of extra bodies in the box, uh, it's certainly good with that context in mind. Uh, he worked with David Long Jr. this past year who did struggle in coverage compared to his usual standard. It was his first year with the Dolphins, um, but had a career year tackling and defending the run. And boy, oh boy, does he have some fire in his gut. There is a really awesome video from him uh, from the in-season Hard Knocks. Cheesehead TV's Twitter tweeted it out where he is he is fired up. A really good quote from him um, is, quote, all over the world they speak ass whooping, end quote. And, you know, the Packers needed a little bit more fire on the defensive side of the football. Don't you think, Dad? We've been talking about how we need, since LaFleur is kind of a laid-back guy, It'd be nice to have somebody on the on the staff or on the defensive side who is fired up, kind of Robert Sala like, um, and really gets the 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 team kind of whipped up into a frenzy, which you know is something that often works on defense. Yeah, and I mean, just playing with more intensity on the defensive side of the football, I think, is big. He's also generally very highly regarded. He interviewed for the Giants defensive coordinator position this past offseason, as well as the Eagles linebacker coach. They were interested in bringing him over um, as Vic Fangio moves from Miami to Philadelphia. It's kind of interesting that he didn't go with that. He chose to go with the Packers instead of following Fangio to, to Philly. Yeah, I was surprised by that as well. I think that was definitely definitely maybe a surprise, but, you know, maybe money talks um, beyond him. Uh, they also are adding Derek Ansley, 
the passing game coordinator. Um, he he's going to he is going to be the passing game coordinator for the Packers. They are bringing him over from the Chargers, where he was last year as the defensive coordinator. Now I know you might be thinking, "Ooh, Chargers! Their defense was not great last year." Um, but for what it's worth, he was not the defensive play caller there while he was the defensive coordinator under Staley. But he did take over defensive play calling the last few weeks with the Chargers from week 16 to week 18. And I think it's worth noting, uh, in that time, they went from the 26th ranked defense by EPA per dropback to 18th, and the 27th ranked defense by dropback success rate all the way up to 4th in dropback success rate. Wow. So they substantially substantially improved with him at the helm. Who are they playing those weeks? Yeah, no, it's it's fair. 27th to 4th is kind of crazy. But anyway, a massive improvement with him as defensive play caller. Before he was the Chargers defensive coordinator, he was their defensive backs coach from 21 to 22, working with guys like Asante Samuel Jr. and Derwin James. He was the defensive coordinator at the University of Tennessee 2020. He was the defensive backs coach of the Raiders in 2018, the defensive backs coach at Alabama, Kentucky, and Tennessee in years prior. So he's got a lot of experience working with defensive backs, so I think it's a decent fit. Uh, and then he also interviewed for the Giants defensive coordinator job uh, this past offseason. So highly regarded as well. Um, you know, you might say, hey, Chargers past defense wasn't exactly great last year, but it did improve when he took more of a control over it. So there is that at least. So how um, many weeks was that you said they... Uh... 16, 17, 18 were the, essentially after the Raiders game. Bills, Broncos, Chiefs. Not bad. And Chiefs with not their starters. So we'll put a pin in That's that. true. It was, uh, that was since I was week 18. Yeah. Uh, but then, so last uh, defensive assistant that was announced was Vince Ogobase, uh, who was going to be the, he was initially announced as the defensive line coach, but he is actually going to be the assistant defensive line coach, according to Tom Silverstein. Um, he had been the defensive line coach at Boston College since 2020 uh, with uh, Halfley. So Halfley is bringing him over. He was the D-line coach at UCLA before that from 2018 to 2019 um, and was the assistant D-line coach with San Francisco from 2016 to 2017. He's a former player as well. He played defensive line at Duke. Um, generally considered, I think the main thing I took away from looking through his information and what people had to say about him, very high energy guy. So it seems like they are looking for a type with these assistant coaches. Wouldn't you say that? Yes. Basically, I think they all seem to have that uh, um, style, let's say. Yeah. And, and, the, I'm, and, and I'm super I think here they want to do it. I'm, yeah. I'm here for it. because they, they want to have an aggressive, like up in your face. Make, no more passive. Like press man coverage. Mm-hmm. No more passive nonsense on defense, hopefully. If, if not now, when? I, I, I'm totally bo- on board for this more aggressive approach to defense. Folks, just remember that when they give up, you know, a 60-yard touchdown over the top because a guy pressed a dude and missed his punch, that these are the, it's a pick-your-poison type of world. And I'll take that over eight straight possessions of getting walked down the field and praying for field goals. That's the, that's the trade we're making here. Um, Dad, anything else on these coaching staff hires, or do we want to start talking about this defense and how it performed last season? This is our big defensive recap episode. It's jumbo. It's large. Anything on these yeah. coaches, or do you want to move let's, on? Let, let's start. Let's start uh, reviewing last year's defense. So figure out where we're where we're starting from now. Okay, folks. Big stretch. Crack the knuckles. We're going to start with looking at the Packers defense as a whole. Overall, on the season, the Packers defense ranked. So keep in mind when we're looking at these rankings, we always want to talk about what the investment was and what the return was. Keep in mind per spot rack. Um, the Packers had the 10th highest cap spending on defense this year. So that's just something to, you know, 
Keep that in the back of your head while I read these numbers. Are we For getting season, our money's worth? Are we getting our money's worth? The answer is not going to surprise you. Um, the Packers this season were 27th by DVOA per FTN Fantasy, which takes into account strength of schedule, et cetera, et cetera. You know this. We've all, we love to talk about DVOA here. It's a very valuable metric. 26th against the pass and 26th against the run. Perfectly balanced, as all things should be, as Thanos would say. By EPA per play, they were 23rd. 23rd in EPA per dropback and 22nd in EPA per rush. Uh, and then by success rate, they were 26th, 28th by dropback success rate, and 16th by rushing success rate. Kind of surprising there, to be honest, uh, that they were that high in rushing success rate. But, you know, I guess we'll take it. But overall, all of those metrics are saying they underperformed. They vastly underperformed the investment of capital they had in the defense this year. Considering the fact oh, and, that... And, and, one, and one, other, one other stat that we've been following all year, uh, points per drive. Oh, yes. Hit me with it. They were 24th. Yeah. So in bottom third points given in, up per drive. Bottom third in the league in almost every metric that, you know, takes into account multiple factors and takes into account pace. And bottom half in pretty much every metric you can find. So not a great year for the defense. Not and part top of the 10. reason. No. Not a great de- year for the defense. And part of the reason they decided to move on from Joe Barry. I think coming into the year, everyone was like, oh, this team could be a playoff team if the defense can really carry the offense through their young struggles. And the offense can just be, you know, like hold the ball, not make mistakes, uh, run the ball well, like lean on the lean on Aaron Jones and the offensive line. Really the opposite happened this year. They made the playoffs, but the offense had to do a lot of heavy lifting that they were probably not expecting to do. And, you know, the defense under Joe Barry certainly had its moments, certainly had individual games like that Dallas Cowboys wildcard game where they stepped up to the plate and they were a big reason they won. But far too often they had games where it's just like, what are we doing here? Tommy DeVito dominating you. Baker Mayfield, perfect passer rating for the first time in Lambeau. Bryce Young, 300 yards passing. It just goes on and on and on. And it was just time for a change. But let's move on to 2023. We know the coaching staff. We know the changes they've made. Let's start talking about the players. And let's start up front with the big guys. But before we do, just some context for these. Overall, Packers players, or the Packers, had 1,270 total snaps on defense across 19 games for about 67 snaps per game. Dad, we're going to start with the big dudes up front with the front seven, and then I'll close a little bit with the defensive backs. Do you want to lead us off? Defensive line, let's hit it. All right, so let's start with their defensive line, where they were, let's see, I have um, 20, they they spent on their interior D-line, so like to not let us get caught in semantics by uh, um, Lafleur about who's a defensive a down lineman and what's down a, lineman what's or not. A, yeah, but in terms of their interior defensive linemen, they spent the twenty fifth most in the league. Um, one thing is just like all of their main um, defensive linemen; they all played all nineteen games, and their top six players are all under contract again in twenty twenty four, according to uh, Spot Track. Overall, they moved. Edge rushers inside very little this year. We something we talked about whether you know Lucas Van Ness or Gary or Preston Smith would move inside. They all all the edge rushers combined for only twenty nine snaps that weren't outside the tackle, um, with only Lucas Van Ness over ten. So the interior defensive line actually basically took over all of that, and they lined up outside more often than the edge rushers lined up lined up inside. So they actually had an expanded role instead of it being restricted by sharing some of that with the uh, edge rushers. Per game, they had about 157 total snaps per game. 
and you said it was like 67 um, defensive snaps per game. So about 2.3 interior defensive linemen per snap um, yeah, were used. Which makes sense. The you know, they, they used some bare front stuff. They tried to get a little heavier when they were really struggling to defend the run. We saw some penny out there. But yeah, mostly they were staying in, like Brian Gutekunst said, a 4-2-5 world, which is, you know, where most of the NFL is living these days. Yeah, so I've organized this by basically snap counts. And so number one with a bullet, Kenny Clark. Green and Bay's not just, not just by snap oh. counts. I would say number one with a bullet, probably best player on the team or best player on defense this year. Yeah, he's the only their only pro bowler on defense. His third time being a pro bowler. He played nine hundred and thirteen snaps, forty eight about forty eight per game. Had his highest percentage of snaps of his career that were either over the tackle or outside the tackle. So play um, lining up wider than he had in the past. Um, his official stats per pro football reference, career high, seven and a half sacks. If you get rid of the half sacks, but you know, PFF, he had 10 sacks. He had a career high nine tackles for a, a loss and a career high 16 quarterback hits. He also had 44 tackles and... He, and by PFF, he had his third best in QB hits and in, in pressures with 66, which tied Gary for the team lead in pressures. He And he also had 38 tackles with PFF, but also had, but one thing he did have is his second highest missed tackle percentage of his career. His run grade improved a little bit over it was the year, the two years prior, but still not as good as his first five years in the league, where his run grade was, was quite good. And he saw significant decline in. 2021 and 2022 and then bounced back a little bit in 2023 in his in his uh run grade by pff he had the best run grade run defensive grade on the team for the interior defensive line group and the second best um pass rush grade among the green bay interior defensive linemen he was he was the only green bay interior defensive lineman in the top 50 in run d but he was on the packers team the second worst in missed tackle percentage. And he was the only um, D lineman for the Packers who was in the top 20 in ESPN's pass rush win rate. Um, he was, for which he was 18th. Yeah, I think for Kenny this year, we talked a little bit in the past offseason about how, you know, they talked about the defensive line is going to be trying to be more aggressive, more one gapping. And I think part of that probably contributes to the fact that he was, you know, had a better pass rushing year, but had a bit of a down run run defense year uh, for his standards, at least. And, you know, it's not entirely surprising that, you know, that would be the result there, especially with the fact that his role changed so much in terms of where he lined up, like you talked about. But I think overall, I was very impressed with Kenny this year. It seems like he's still got juice left in the tank and juice left in the tank moving forward. Yeah, I think he was um, played excellent, getting stops in the backfield, um, disrupting the play, um, and getting sacks. And it's kind of the the scheme allowed him to um, rush up field a little bit more and not just have to hold the point of attack at the nose, which he had done a lot of earlier in his career. And some of that may have led to getting a lower run D grade if you say, okay, you can run up field more. But there were times this year where we had maybe too many player, players doing that at the same time. Here's the thing. Even when we didn't, was the run defense ever good? So <laughs> did it really hurt us that much, I guess is my 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 response to that one. 
But no, I, I would definitely say Kenny was probably the most impressive player on the defensive front this year, especially when you consider it over the course of the whole year. I would say Gary probably had higher highs. But no, Kenny, you know, he gets he gets an A for me. Yeah, so then, so now the, the player who's kind of like taken some of that middle responsibility that freed up uh, um, Kenny Clark to go line up a little wider is uh, TJ Slayton, who was second in the D-line in snaps with 679, 36 per game. He led the team in snaps in the A-gap, almost 80% of the team total, but only about a quarter of his snaps. So they didn't have somebody in the A-gap all that often. And he was second to Kenny Clark in the B-gap. Um, per pro football reference, he led all Green Bay um, D linemen in tackles with 50, and PFF credited him with 55 and had two tackles for a loss. Um, and he had either two QB hits or one, depending on which one of those two you believe. Fair. Which is kind of curious. <laughs> you think that making contact with somebody would be you know, objective, but a little bit more objective. He had the best defensive grade by PFF of his career, um, combining both his second best run D and his second best pass D in, this, in the same year. And he was the 12th in the league amongst D tackles in pressure rate um, by PFF. He led all D linemen on the team in, in stops with 35 and had the second lowest missed tackle percentage among um, Green Bay's D linemen as okay, well. Okay, TJ. Tell him what's up. And he was um, ninth in the league among D tackles in ESPN's run stop win rate. So he's he's doing well as a kind of a nose tackler in the middle of the uh, the line on a, on a on a league wide basis as well, in a number of enough number of different uh, stats. Yeah, and you know this is a guy who he's still young, like and coming into the league, he was considered to be you know kind of a raw guy it's like well you kind of got to get him into shape a little bit but the athleticism is there and I especially think for saw... whatever he was 360 pounds when he first came into the league i don't know if he was quite three i think he was more like 335 if I remember maybe he had already but... slimmed down to 360 by the time he got to the packers but don't he was slimmed down to three don't say slim down to 360 please slim well, down to 330 i don't think he was ever like 380 <laughs> 390 uh but Slayton... uh, perhaps not but he was still i think he was still dunking at 360 Oh, yeah. But Slayton, to me, like when I watch him play and you obviously did the deep dive into the stats and I I definitely thought he had a good year. I'm surprised his like run stop win rate was that good compared to the league, because to be honest, I just kind of thought that no one on the team would have a run stop win rate <laughs> like that. good. So to me, it, I would say it's doubly impressive to be on a run defense that I would say was below average. A lot of the stats would say is below average and still have good success when you know there are a lot of players on the team that are not positive run defenders um for him though i think the biggest thing with him is his play and his ability to be that bigger body in the middle opens up the opportunities for these other players now the question with slayton is he is probably the one that's going to have the hardest time moving from a 3-4 to a 4-3 because he's really more of a true nose tackle so I'm curious as to how his role evolves next year. But since we're just talking about 2023, the reincarnation of the Gravedigger, I just need more Gravedigger dances. But I would say... It would be, I would love if he brought out the Gravedigger. Even more often. He does, but like even yeah. more often. But no, I, I definitely... Is, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think Slate has a little bit more ability to split a gap 
and rush upfield than we've seen. Then he gets a chance utilize. to in his current current role. And so maybe in in the in the new alignment, he'll be freed up to do a little bit more of that. We'll see. It's, but it, it's going to it's going to be a little crowded with uh, him and Wyatt and Kenny and Brooks and Wooden all all competing for those snaps. You know what it is, Dad? It's a good problem to have. Is what yes. it is. But no, I think a hundred percent um considering also the fact, you know, Slayton, like he was a fifth round pick. I would say going forward and how I feel about him, like he's definitely a positive player to have on the team. It's always good to have more defensive linemen than you need. Rotating these guys, these big bodies, is how a lot of the best defenses over the last ten years have been able to dominate, is keeping these guys fresh. And I think Slayton yeah. this past year has shown that he has a place in the NFL for a little while, like for a good while longer. Like he's a positive player and he had a really good 2023 in my opinion, especially considering the fact that you're not paying him very much really at all. Yeah. I mean, his, uh, what is he getting? Like barely over much. a million as a, it's, as a, as a, fifth, as a fifth round, yeah. as a fifth round pick. And they, that's another flyer. like great value for a fifth round pick. And he's turned into a solid, yeah. You know, basically I would say a starter. Very, very solid, like above replacement level starters. Very solid B. I would say a very solid B, B plus level season for, for TJ Slayton for me. Yeah. I, I like what he's doing. And I think, you know, it's a player they want to want to keep on. And I guess he's going to be going into the last year of his contract probably this year. Yeah. I believe this was year three, four year contract for a fifth round pick going into his last year. I think we'll see if they consider. I don't know if he's the type of guy you extend a year early, but. Depending on how this year goes, he might make himself a decent amount of money. We'll see. Um, but, Dad, who do you have next in our defensive line snap counts? So next is uh, Wyatt with uh, in, you know second year. This year he had 644 snaps, 34 per game. Um, he mostly lined up in the B-gap and over the tackle. Um, he was the third most in the team in the B-gap snaps and second in over the tackle snaps. And just so you team. know, sorry, we've been using some – football vernacular but the a gap is the space between the center and the guard on either side so both are a gaps the b gap is the space between the guards and the tackles c gap is tackles and tight ends and d gap is outside of the tight ends so just so you know they're essentially lining him up between the guard and the tackle a lot right and the way they've they've parsed it out is they they've basically over the tackle or then anything outside of the tackle um Mm-hmm. For the for the D lineman alignment, rather than worrying about where they are relative to the tight end outside of the tackle, Wyatt was also um, second in the D tackle group with in sacks with five and a half by Pro Football Reference, seven per PFF. So this was about tripling his rookie year totals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the disparity there is uh, PFF does counts half sacks as full sacks, if I remember correctly. Yes, so PFF they don't believe so, in half sacks, which I understand the logic there. But so just what this what says quick. like had four solo sacks and three shared sacks. Yeah, if you want to break there. it down, you still you still yeah. beat your man. So, um, and so that was and so he increased in the second year by trip, tripling his sack total essentially, and he was second in the D tackle group with forty eight pressures, which was six times his rookie year total, mm-hmm. um, and his pressure rate was the eighth highest amongst D, D tackles in the league. And that was what I was going to eighth highest. Goodness. That's, that's very impressive. That's even higher than I thought. That was what I was going to ask you about. Cause like number of pressures we talked about last off seasons, like 
you know, Devontae Wyatt, like, it's not good that he can't get on the field. Like, that's not positive. Like, last year, we the, one of the biggest things was, like, why is Devontae Wyatt not able to play? You spent a first-round pick on him. He's 24 years old. He's old for a rookie. This year, we saw that first step we needed to see. He was able to stay on the field. And the fact that he is, like, top 10 in pressure rate for interior defensive line. Pressure yeah. rate's probably yeah. the best the best metric, I would say, for pass rush productivity, in my opinion. The fact, top 10, that's a borderline elite level interior defensive lineman as a pass rusher. Now, I think the big thing is he probably needs to improve a little bit in his run defense. He needs to finish his pressures. I think that's the biggest thing there. And, you know, just make the natural progression from year two to year three. And I think we could be really excited about him going forward. Yeah, the one thing I would say is that that top 10 in in rate as a rate metric is, you know, you have to get over a certain snap threshold. Yes, of course. Which of course. I may have been it was maybe it was a hundred snaps. I uh, I can't remember now what it was. It's like twenty percent of the league leader in snaps at the position, which that's probably more like a hundred. Maybe it was one hundred fifty. He had to have at least. But still, among players who are playing regularly, yeah, no, he was he, he was in the top ten. And I would say those numbers are even better than I expected his performance to be. I was like, because when you said Wyatt, I was like, I would say you know Wyatt, really good year. I would say B B plus level year. Uh, rush the passer well but when you look at those pressure numbers and the pressure rate and i mean it's hard not to say like call it an absolute success because a lot i think a lot of people would be like oh why like he's a pretty good player i don't know if he was quite worth that first round pick let me tell you if he can take that like the performance he had this year where he was top 10 in pressure rate obviously with a certain cutoff of snaps honestly that alone is already probably worth a late first round pick but if he can improve from there i mean we're cooking now we're cooking now but anyway sorry go on about Wyatt yeah so he was second in Green Bay's group in tackles with 37 and second with um 26 stops which were both three times and five times his rookie totals respectively so he's definitely jumped significantly from his um his first year to second year, which is what we we really wanted to see Yes, and then the other, he also, not surprisingly, led the the D line group in PFF pass rush grade, but he was last on the team in missed tackle rate at thirty percent. Yeah, and that he tracks. was, and he was the worst among front seven players in PFF in run D grade. Amongst all run all front seven players on the Packers, or I all believe that's my nose, I, in, including you're right edges and. But just just on the Packers or in the league, I think that that was on the Packers. I think he's, but that was on the Packers. Yeah, that that that's. But okay, I'd have to see where he was in the league. Not 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 too far down. That's okay. That's okay. Probably still not great though. Yes, not great. And I think that's the big thing with him is he needs to become a more two way player. But go on. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of what I had for for Wyatt. If you wanted to, yeah, add any more thoughts. Do you want to add anything more, just general wrap-up? Because I feel like I've said my piece on him. I would say that when you read the stats off to me, I would say definitely tracks my my feeling on him against the run versus against the pass. But I would say him against the pass was even better than I expected. But that's my main take on what you were saying about Wyatt and what I viewed from Wyatt when I was watching him. Yeah, so in terms of in the league, it's not that bad, though. It's still... It's below average. Um, well, 36 from the bottom, well below average. Yeah. But it's 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 not good on run. So he j- he needs to improve. It's more like a hundred hundred tenth in the league amongst D tackles. Yeah, in run defense grade for PFF. 
And yeah. the, the I think the thing that's really sinking in there is the missed tackle uh, rate. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's the same with the pressures and the sacks. He's just got to finish these plays that he's getting there on. But anyway, yeah. Dad, next D lineman on the team, who you got? Is uh, Brooks had 440 snaps, 23 per game. And he had his about split 50-50 between the B gap and over the tackle. Um, he was third in the, among the D tackles with four sacks and third with QB in QB hits with 30 and, and, and 30 had 30 pressures, but he had the second worst run D grade by PFF, uh, only better than, than Wyatt. Hmm. And he only had, he only had 19 tackles, but his missed tackle rate was, was, was quite good actually, even though his overall run D grade was not, was not good. So I don't know if the thing like he's like just play they give give him bad marks for getting the wrong location on the run on the run plays and, and running himself out of the play, mm-hmm. but not not because he's you know missing a bunch of tackles, and that's just among Screen Bay. Um, and he was tied for wide for second on the team in tackles for a loss. I think that was behind um, Kenny. And then so I don't have I have fewer fewer notes as we get farther and further down the depth chart. Yeah, I mean um, for Brooks, I would say just. A very impressive rookie year is how I would describe it. And I was just going through and looking at his run defense grade. It definitely seems like it improved as the year went. He had a couple really abysmal performances against the run, specifically against Kansas City and Minnesota. Obviously, you know, run grade is subjective. PFF grades are always subjective. They're just another piece of data. Um, but they're people who watch the game, watch a lot of games, and it's their essentially their opinions on it. So, it, you know, it is a piece of data. It's not the end-all be-all. But it does seem, at least by that metric, he did improve as a run defender as time went. So there's hope that he will make another step next year in that uh, facet. I would say, in terms of the capital used to acquire him, A plus. Like, eh, like oh yeah, eh, he was an a, awesome, he was awesome steal. year in terms of having a steal in the draft, the ability to play, and this is the other thing. He'd never played interior defensive line before, probably not since high school. So. Here's a guy who's changing. I did the Chris Collinsworth. Oh my goodness! Now here's a guy, uh, but he is a guy who's changing <laughs> positions. So I think there is some, you know, understanding there that that's going to come with some growing pains, especially I would say probably against the run. Um, but from what we saw this year, I think there's nothing you can be but excited with Carl Brooks and his potential going forward, especially because you know. Defending the run is for nerds. Like, like, <laughs> it, it, just just go get the pass. Just go get the quarterback, man. Um, and the thing is, you know, he showed a ability to get into the backfield. Yes, um, 100%. and make impact and make impact plays. Let's say uh, on uh, you know not that many snaps, so like a third of the defensive snaps in a game. And he was, he was making impact plays in a lot of the games. And it showed up. And he's had the in terms of overall defensive grade, he had the second best amongst the D line behind only. Uh, Kenny and and not that far behind him actually. Yeah, and I mean you look at the last 3 weeks like he was dominant against Chicago with multiple hurries, two hurries and a sack. He was dominant against San Francisco, four hurries on just 16 snaps. I mean, he he closed the season very strong and that makes me even more excited to see what he can do next year. Um dad, next interior defensive lineman or do you have anything else you wanted to say on Brooks? That's I think it's a, a bit for for Brooks, okay, we gotta um, keep this. We gotta keep this train chugging. Keep... I'm interrupting you a lot. That's on me. But we did That's say okay. this is the jumbo, the jumbo uh, defensive group. We don't want to make it so, the mega double jumbo. Like, <laughs> but anyway, well, we are talking about the jumbo defensive players right now. That's true. Uh, Colby Wooden next, I would imagine. 
Yes, so he played uh, 298 snaps, uh, the least amount amongst players who played, only 16 per game. The fewest amount. And he was Sorry. about... In his, what? Nothing, go ahead. I was just correcting your grammar. Eh, whatever. What'd you say about for nerds? Fair enough. <laughs> go ahead. You got me there. So uh, his alignment was split 40-40-20 uh, between the B-gap over the tackle and outside the tackle. So he... His alignment was spread out all over the front. Um, he did have one shared sack and 12 total pressures, got nine stops, and missed um, three tackles out of 24 attempts. So also um, a poor tackling grade, though. For the Packers, it was kind of middle of the pack amongst the D tackles. Yeah. And, uh, and his run defense grade was also... Right in the middle amongst the, the, the those group of five. So we've got to see a little bit less of him, and I think feel like maybe less of him as the as the season went on, and Brooks started to get more and more of those snaps. Yeah, I mean, you look the first two games of the season, he played thirty six snaps each per PFF, um, and a lot of these numbers are per PFF, just so we're sourcing our data and Pro Football Reference as well. Um, but then he kind of double digits just around never over 20 for the next like seven weeks hits 21 week and then down to single digits after that had a lot of snaps against Dallas but a lot of that was in garbage time as we know love to see it um but yeah for Wooden I he's another guy like we were talking about I think moving to a 4-3 is gonna be really good for him because I think he's more of a 4-3 defensive end than he is an interior defensive lineman so I I think that could be very beneficial to him uh to be able to kind of go against tackles more and not have to take on double teams. He's a little lighter. I don't think he's he was able to really hold up and run defense very well much at all. Um, and so I think he's kind of the type of guy who I think is going to be, you know, a 4-3 defensive end, more of a designated pass rusher, more of a part-time player. But I think he, he showed some flashes as a rookie where I think he can play. Uh, but I, I think you could see a role for him, but not as a starter. That's exactly on, on, how on, I feel. On a defense front. And, yeah. and that's how I feel like he played in 2023. I'd say he was like a B minus C plus player. And especially more so if like if this was an eight year veteran doing this, I'd be like C minus like D plus. But he's a rookie. First year in the league. Got to get that play strength up. Got to get that weight up a little bit. But I, I think there were there was enough there where you're like, OK, there's a role for him going forward. Yeah, and I think the, what we're looking for, and you mentioned earlier, is having the depth in the D-line to rotate guys in and out. I think that was one of the hallmarks of the Eagles Eagles yep. defense from last year, where they oh, had a I lot of depth. Say the, the Eagles defense the from when they won the Super Bowl, the Eagles defense from last year, the San Francisco defense back in 2019. The, yeah, like like they, all these able to keep really fresh dominant. guys on the exactly. field so they can just go full speed on every play. Yeah, because there's probably not many things more tiring than running 100 miles an hour into a 300-pound man and trying to push him back. Like, yep. Like that sounds Let's exhausting. Let's do, okay, you guys are doing suicides with blocking sleds for the rest of practice. Exactly. No, thank you. Uh, but, Dad, uh, anything more on Wooden, or do you want to move on to another D lineman, or do you want to no, move that, on to then, the linebacker? The only other person to mention who I think at least currently on the roster is Jonathan Ford, who had exactly no snaps. No snaps. Yeah, exactly. Um, but all those guys are, were on the team last year and I think are under contract for next year. Yes. So from there, we can move on. I realize we've got this kind of arranged by uh, by size of player, on, by player on size. or edges? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, just group. 
Okay. We're going from D-tackle. Now we're going to edge rushers next. I'm doing corners before safeties, but... Ah, you messed it up. I know I did. (laughs) All right. You're going to have to burn through these edges and linebackers, or I'm not going to have time for my corners and safeties. Oh, man. Okay, yeah, I see where we are in time. I know, right? Okay. So, edge rushers. um, So, not including, like, um, players who left during early in the year. Um, Hollins. Yeah. who, Who left... But uh, the the all five of the players who played the most snaps are going to be back in 2020, or at least signed in 2024, um, including their ex- extra Odomegwu through the special program. From, yeah, the international from pathway program. Yeah, under contract for next year. They were and they were twelfth in spending in the league on edge rushers. So first is Preston Smith, led all edges with 838 snaps, 44 per game. He led the team per PFF with 11 sacks, though by kind of traditional measures where you count half sacks, he was second on the team with eight. Um, and it was the second best, second high of his career by PFF's count. Um, he had 14 quarterback hits um, and four tackles for a loss, which was tied for highest of his career. He had 51 pressures and was 64th in pressure rate among league edges. He led the team or led the team edge group with 48 tackles. And he had the third best PFF defensive grade of his career. Second best run defense of his career was 27th in the league amongst edges. Um, then his pass rush grade was right about his career median. Um, so kind of kind of average in that regard. Um, and he was second best of the team edges to Gary in run defense. And, and, and also pass rush PFF grades, which were 27th and 58th in the league amongst edges. Yeah, for precedent. I actually felt like he had an even better year than that. But, you know, because it almost felt like a bit of a resurgence for him. I felt like, you know, watching him smoke Derisaw in week 17, watching him, you know, give some of these tackles all they could handle, some of the better tackles in the league. I, he still got it. I know he, he's like one of the oldest guys in the league. But rushing against the oppose, opposing team's left tackle. Definitely context, important context to keep in mind. But you mentioned And his, the other thing I did not go ahead. keep track of and look at is like, how many of these like sacks, pressures, and hits were on like third down or high? It definitely felt like a situations. lot. It felt of like high a lot leverage of them. situations. And speaking of high leverage situations, I think Rashawn Gary dominated in that aspect as well. Preston Smith, I I feel like, you know, he's still got it. Like he's not showing his age, and his style of play is not showing his age as well. And I feel like he really was the edge that played the run the best. I know you said his run grade was second to Gary's on the year. I felt like he played the run the best of all the edges that we had this season, for sure, in terms of making sure the play was like strung out on the edge every single time, not getting out of his gap, playing sound, like not getting too aggressive. Not, not diving inside as the Not play diving goes inside on a read option. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, speaking of Rashawn Gary, no, I love Rashawn Gary. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, but, 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 but you can see, I just, one more thing about Preston, that he doesn't seem to be tailing off. Really, he's still yeah. getting, you know, this year was, you know, among his like the top half of of uh, the years in his career in, in a lot of different ways. Some Second best in some in some measures. So I think he's yep. still arms, showing a lot of juice. In the your tank. arms don't get shorter when you get older. That's <laughs> like he's still going to have that, those long arms for like, as long as he's around. You know, right. They're like uh, ropes on a on a ship. Yeah. But speaking of players who are kind of entering their prime, though, I felt like Rashawn Gary started the year off really well and then you know maybe tailed off a little bit at the end what did you feel like about Gary's performance and what are the numbers you're saying 
Yeah, I mean, one thing you did see is that the his 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 sacks really tailed off uh, at the end of the year. He and went sacks one, aren't two, everything, three, but you know four, it is five six. He didn't get a sack in his last seven games, which is tough because you need him to do that. But at the same time, sacks are a bit noisy. But anyway, what were his other numbers looking like this year? So he was had 667 snaps, 35 per game. But after week six, that went up to about 40 per game. So it's 35 for the whole season, but 40 per game. So they definitely saw him ramping up his uh, um, snap usage as the season went on. So at, at, they like took it easy up to the bye and then got him to, I think, uh, more what they would like to see going forward. And maybe they'll go for even more next year. He was second on the team in sacks with 10. But if you go by PFO, um, kind of the official measurements with of half sacks, he he was uh, had nine, and which led the team. And it was the second highest uh, sack total of his career. He led, as you mentioned, led the team um, edges in run def- defensive grade, which was 19th in the league among, in, amongst edges. And his pass rush grade was 33rd in the league amongst edges. Um, he tied for the team league. The team lead with 66 pressures tied with Kenny Clark. It was the second highest of his career, but still significantly behind his career high of 87 two years ago um, pressures. And he was 18th in the league among, amongst edges in pass rush um, success rate per PFF. Now, we talked about his, his run defense, um, but he did... He tied his career high for missed tackle rate of 16.7%. And Preston's missed tackle tackle rate was also, I think, similar, like about 17%. So that didn't help the run defense. He was third amongst all the front line players, the the front seven, with 27 stops, and was third on the team with seven tackles for a loss, which tied for the second best in his career. I would say the first half of the year, Gary... Um, or maybe the first two thirds, we were starting to see him maybe like ascend as the season went on, starting to get a little bit better, and maybe like moving into that upper tier. And then I feel like he kind of took a step back into sort of on the edge of a top starter. Or yeah, a, yeah. It amongst, definitely amongst felt like edges. it definitely felt like after that Detroit game, he wasn't as impactful. Um, he still had, you know, a good number of sacks, you know, through that Detroit game, he was, you know, his average was around, I think four or five pressures a game. And then afterwards it was like three to four. So, well, except, he, except for the Minnesota game where he had a total of eight, eight. with eight yeah, that's why I was, I was no sacks or hits. So that one was, was mm-hmm. kind of that an was outlier a in the second half of the at, season. I was looking at median essentially, but also if you yeah. go by PFF grade, which obviously not the end all be all. But if you look through his first one, two, three, four, five, six games, uh, all but one were above 73 in terms of pass rush grade. And then the following one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 games, um, you'll see, you could see that he only had one game above a 73 in pass rush grade. So yeah, for, PFF for, for... doesn't think, exactly. PFF doesn't think his play was as good after that Denver game. Uh, and then some of the pressure numbers after that Detroit game also don't quite line up quite as well. So definitely seems like he maybe took a step back as the season went, 
you could think, you know, in the, my thought is if you want to have an optimistic view, he, you know, wasn't able to work out to his fullest extent in the off season because he was still rehabbing his knee injury. And that next year, you know, he'll have a full off season of working out and he'll be in even better shape. So there's that. Um, but yeah, so definitely I would say the first half of the year is like, yes, this is awesome. This is a top 10 edge rusher in the game. And then second half of the year, it's like, eh, still really good, but you'd want to see him get back to that level, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I was going to say, it's kind of striking when you just look at the, if you're familiar with the, the way the color coding for PFF yeah. grades. You can and see you it. Just it's see the color right dist- just visual color distribution as the season went on is very different. Yeah, and and I think that kind of matches the eye test as well. I mean, certainly still was playing pretty well down the stretch, but not dominating games like we saw him in the first half of the season. Um, Dad, next edge rusher on the list, list who you got? So uh, Kingsley Enigbare had 493 snaps for 27 a game. Um, and we should mention with Gary, did get that contract extension this past season. Um, it's going right. to be with the team long-term. That's super exciting. And yeah, just wanted to mention that in terms of recap in 2023. But sorry, Enigbare. Right, so he had 27 snaps per game. Um, amongst the, the league, he was 68th among edges in pressure rate by PFF. He had 27 pressures. He also had 19 stops, which is, you know, for the for the number of snaps he had, is quite good. Um, and he had very similar grades by PFF in most defensive measures, kind of in the kind of middle of the pack, I would say, across the board in all of his defense in all of the defensive measures. I don't think there's a whole lot more to say. I say he came in and did his job, but didn't really. I wouldn't say he was really outstanding or noticeable, except for a few plays here and there. Yeah, I feel like for me, he played like boot action run game really well was the main thing that stood out to me. Like he and he was able to like come down hard off the line, like off the edge of the line and get the running back in the backfield a few times, was able to defend the guy like coming out against the boot, was able to read that very well. As a pass rusher, though, I would say I was a little more impressed his first year as a pass rusher than his second. Now you could argue maybe that's just the level of expectations he had first to second year. But also you expect a player to, you know, make some more improvements first to second year. Um for me, though, you know, it really just sucks that he had that injury at the end of the year because he's a very valuable depth piece to their edge rusher rotation. That torn ACL is probably going to knock him out for a good chunk of 2024, which really yeah. sucks. But I would say, you know, a B minus C plus level year for Enigbare. Uh, you know, that's kind of how I felt yeah. about it. What were you thinking? Yeah, in a large, in a lot of ways, he was kind of the same player. He he, he didn't take a step forward from his rookie year to a second year. In, in most most metrics, he was about the same and didn't show uh, any any big jump in play. Yeah, not too much else we really need to touch on there. Um, Lucas Van Ness next, I'm guessing? Yeah, so he had 23 snap um, um, defensive snaps per game, and he was 69th in the league amongst edges in pressure rate and had 22 pressures. Um, and he led the uh, the edge group and the... Then the whole front seven group with only six point his a missed tackle rate of only six point one percent. So he had the 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 best uh, at finishing tackles amongst the entire front seven. Yeah. Um so that's maybe the thing that was uh stood out the most, it was very consistent at. Um he only had like one bad tackling grade on the entire season. Um yeah. I I was I was pleasantly surprised with Lucas Van Ness, I would say, on the season. It's like some people like you're pleasantly surprised with the thirteenth overall pick, like having kind of like a 
you know, let's say mediocre year. I was like, well, you know, he's billed as this really raw prospect coming into the season. So I was, and he's behind two like established pass rushers kind of parallels the way that Rashawn Gary came into the Packers team a few years ago. And for my money, I would say that he was more impressive as a rookie than Rashawn Gary was. Wouldn't you say? I would say we started to have more contribution during the year than Gary had um, during his rookie year. And so the second half of the year, we were getting like a couple pressures per game from uh, Luke Svandes from not that many snaps. Yeah. And so his I think you could, athleticism he, he was making pops, a play every game. His athleticism pops off the screen. I mean, you could see it even week one. Like he chased Justin Fields down in the open field. Like that, people yeah. don't do that. That's not normal. He's 270 pounds. Like that's unheard of. But yeah, I would say Lucas Van Ness, a, a very, you know, I, I'm very excited to see what happens next with him. Yeah, mostly a developmental year um, with some signs of improvement as the year went on. I think is the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I like the fact that he's not missing tackles. Yeah. Hope that keeps up. Yeah, and he seems strong as hell. So, uh, any other edges you want to talk about? Anything else on Lucas? Really, Van Ness nobody wanna... that played enough to to be able to measure. Like Brenton Cox played five snaps, and Odomegui didn't play. Um, so, all right, they could both be back next year. Okay. Dear listeners. Now take a deep breath. We're going to have a, a, just a quick, you know, keeping it, we're keeping it jumbo. We're going to linebackers next. We have the corners and safeties after that. Appreciate you sticking with us. But I think, you know, when I'm thinking about the front of the defensive line right now, as we wrap that section up, I'm really excited about that group going forward. Like I, I, I'm pretty stoked about the young talent they have there. Wouldn't you say? I think their defensive front is very well set. Um, in terms of a lot of talent, diversified skill sets, run stoppers and pass rushers, and all under contract, mm-hmm. and a lot of them quite young. A lot of people talk about the young talent on offense. There's some good young talent on this defense. However, as we get further from the line of scrimmage. There start to be some question marks. And uh, take us to the linebackers, Dad, because I think this is where the medium question marks are. And then as I talk about the secondary, that's where the big question marks are. But, Dad, take us through the linebackers. Yeah. It's like, so the linebackers, they're like the third highest spending in the league, according to Spot Track. It's like, yeah, wow. That, that tracks. Um, Quay Walker led the, the team, the linebackers in, with 60 snaps a game. He was third on the team in tackles for a loss with seven. Um, in terms of uh, league-wide, he was 67th in uh, um, defensive grade among linebackers, 47th in the run, and 50th in coverage. Um, he was 18th best in missed tackle rate at only 7.6%, so decent tackler amongst linebackers. And he improved his run defense um, grade by PFF dramatically over his rookie year and in tackling with fewer misses despite having you know more tackle attempts and more stops. So he definitely saw an improvement in his in his run defense from his rookie year to his second year. But he got worse in both pass rush and coverage, according to PFF, giving up a better NFL passer rating when targeted than his rookie year and was 57th in the league in you know, passer rating against um, amongst linebackers after being 22nd in, as a rookie in um, passer rating against. So dropped 50, 35 spots in the league ranking for that. And he was 62nd in the league amongst linebackers with 100 cover snaps in yards given up per coverage snap at 1.1. 1. 1. 
Um, his rookie year, he only gave up uh, 0.71 yards per coverage snap. So definitely saw no no improvement and actually got worse yeah. in, in that from his rookie year to his second year. The way I feel watching Quay, like, I, I just, he's solid. Is like, I, like, I feel like he doesn't, he doesn't make very many splash plays. He doesn't make a whole lot of plays behind the line of scrimmage. I don't necessarily always notice him doing the wrong thing, but you know, you want him to, you want him to, I would say, contribute more given the fact that you drafted him with a first round pick. I feel like that's fair to expect. I, I, I don't know. That's kind of how I feel about it, at least. Yeah, he, he also leaves you wanting more. Um, and this time, and he it's always wanting leaves you more, like, wanting more, and and feeling like there is some, like there's more there. That's kind of how. Well, that's I what I mean by wanting more. That yeah, I guess that's what I'm. That that's a better way to put it. That there is more it, there that you're not it getting. Feels yet. like it's just under the surface. Like you see his movement skills, you see his size, you like the movement skills at that size. You see the massive wingspan. You see him like the ability to fly around out there, the ability as a blitzer, and like. Ability to contort his body around blockers at times. And it's just like, man, like, you feel like he should be doing, he should be having a bigger impact on the game, I guess is how I feel about Quay. Yeah. Yeah, forgot about Quay. But I do think an interesting, like, they're going to need him to play really well next year in a 4 3. Where they Oh, he's going to have like, an enormous responsibility. So this is the question is whether they can unlock what seems to be untapped potential in a defensive scheme that we think is going to emphasize his play more. So that's going to be very critical to see. So we'll see, you know, if it's going to be 4-3, when it is 4-3, there's going to be a lot I of the play for the linebackers. I imagine he's and- going to be the weak side linebacker. I would, I would be, that would be my guess, but I guess we will see. Yeah, so this, and then... Think about who's going to be the other ones. This past year, Campbell was second in snaps at 53 per game, and he missed mm-hmm. a few games as well. Yep, he was vocal um, about how he played through injury and then didn't want to play through injury and, and then played through injury again. So who knows what to right, make of so, that. But Yeah, and so maybe some of these grades where he was doing worse was because of injury and playing hurt. Wasn't able to play as well. He was 50th in defensive grade amongst linebackers, 58th against the run, 63rd in coverage. 42nd in missed tackle rate at 9.9%. So his first year, remember, he had like his amazing uh, yeah. missed tackle rate. He just never missed tackles. It was like he had phenomenal. like three missed tackles on the entire year or something crazy low. I don't remember what the number was, but crazy low. Um, he was much worse in coverage this past year than he was first two years in Green Bay. Gave up more yards per catch, gave up three t- touchdowns, got no interceptions after having two interceptions each of his first two years. His pass rating against was 129 when targeted, fourth worst amongst qualifying linebackers in the league last year. And in 2022, he was fifth best. He went from fifth best to fourth worst in the league amongst linebackers and when tar- when uh, pass rating when targeted. And he was 76th in the league amongst linebackers in yards given up per coverage snap at 1.2. Um, in 2022, he gave up only one yard per coverage snap, and in 2021, only 0.7 when he was 10th best in the league by that met- it, metric. It so matches the eye test. He, his, he, his, he just looked You can see the there. play is just not nearly as good as it was um, two years ago or even last year. Yeah, and, and I felt, I felt the, like he was you know, the borderline. Injuries could be. I felt like he was borderline a liability out there at times, unfortunately. like he, I felt like he was in the wrong gaps at times in the run defense. He 
was letting guys like kind of run behind him and and not really having a feel for where he was supposed to be you know it wasn't terrible i'm not trying to say he was like oh like like super like below replacement level but it was just like you know he's one of the more higher paid linebackers in the league and i would say not really producing like that the past two years pretty much since they gave him that contract which kind of goes to show you know maybe don't pay guys who come in have one really good year and then and then need a contract but they were trying to you know push all the chips in for their last year with rogers and i understand that but i would say not has not worked out quite as well for camp no and uh maybe it's injuries because i think he had some things that he had been doing well his whole career and even those have gotten worse the last two years and you know just the football's it's hard on the body it's it's harder as you get older um yeah and I think the next guy you're going to talk about, I would say McDuffie to me, like I know McDuffie has his own struggles in coverage, but I I was more impressed with his play this year than I was with Campbell's, frankly. Uh, were you, did you want to talk anything more about Campbell? I would say, you know. No, I think I, I covered, uh, you know, yeah, kind of where C, he is now C compared to where he had C, been in the yeah. previous years and how much his play has declined um, um, this past year compared to earlier in his career. Yeah, whereas on the other hand, as you're about to talk about, I would say McDuffie, to me, at least watching, and maybe the stats won't bear this out, but I felt like he had his best year as a Packer. Yeah, so he he played 37 snaps a game. Um, He was 74th in um, overall defensive grade by PFF and linebackers, 64th against the run and 73rd in coverage. He was 10th best in missed tackle rate in the league at 6.5%, a significant improvement over his previous year at 11.4% missed tackle rate. He also showed improvement in his pass rush grade per um, PFF, um, though his coverage was slightly below average, just like the previous year, um, and was 27th. In, though Even though his, his coverage grade was below average, he was 27th in the league in passer rating when targeted, and 25th in the league amongst linebackers in yards given up per coverage snap at 0.8. You know, in, in uh, 2022 is even better than that, though it was only 87 um, coverage snaps, so it was a smaller sample size. But so he, when he's targeted, he's not actually giving up that many yards per per snap, or I should say, he's not giving up that many yards per snap when um, on his coverage snaps. Yeah, and so that's actually like showing said, some improvement. I would say the missed tackle rate improvement is the thing that I noticed the most watching. It's like. It's like, okay, he's making plays in the backfield like quite a bit, and, like and he's, your gaps. He's hit, right. He's hitting the gap in the run plays. He showed a, a knack for that, I feel like, this year of um, getting to the player at the line of scrimmage of the backfield by by identifying the gap and going through it at high speed. And so he's taking some of that, you know, special teams craziness yeah. to the defensive side of the ball and just flying in full speed. And you talk about like players with like long arms, that's not McDuffie. No, no, but he's, he's still not. doing a good job of wrapping players up and getting to the ground. And he's sneakily, I think, one of the more important players on this defense next year, given the fact that we don't know if Campbell's going to be back. We're going to talk about that at the end of this episode in terms of players who might be cap casualties. Um, talking about how they're going to need more linebackers if they're moving to a 4-3. And the fact that he's going to be the guy who's probably most familiar with Halfley's defense, given the fact that he played under him in his last year at Boston College. So kind of a trifecta there where... I think he's sneakily going to be really important next year, and it would be great if he could carry over the play from this year into next year with maybe improving a little bit against coverage or in coverage. Yeah, yeah I, I think so as well. And I could see him being one of the 
um, three starting linebackers in next year's defense. I mean, certainly given the roster right now. Anyone else in the linebacker room you wanted to talk about? Eric Wilson? or Well, there's Eric Wilson. There's not much to say. He only had 13 snaps per game. Um, though in his limited snaps, he had the best run de- defense grade for the, for the group, but the worst pass coverage grade on, on Green Bay, among Green Bay linebackers and had the worst missed tackle rate of the group. Um, he also gave up 1.6 yards per snap in coverage, so that's really high. Yeah, for example, that's great. twice as high as McDuffie's. I would say that would be that's near the bottom of the league. I think like league last place uh, amongst qualifiers, like 1.7 or 1.8, something like that. Eric Wilson's a special teamer. Like it is what he, that is what he is. And I'm very happy to have him as a special teamer. I mean, anyone who will make that play that he made against San Francisco, diving for that ball, chasing it downfield, he can play on my team any day of the year. Yeah. He's just aggressively and confidently scooped that ball up, bouncing along the ground, like a, like a, a wild pig. Yeah. But anyway, Dad, let's move on to the secondary where the Packers spent the 23rd most uh, against the cap. Like we said, as we get further from the line of scrimmage, things are going to have some more question marks on them. But I'm going to start with the corners. Jair Alexander. Tough season for Jair, I would say. He's the eighth highest paid corner in 2023 per over the cap per cash spending. So amount of cash he got this year. Played in nine games of a possible 19. He missed nine to injury and one to suspension, as we all know. Don't need to rehash that. 560 total defensive snaps, 44% of the Packers' total defensive snaps on the year. 500 of those were as an outside corner and just 18 in the slot. So he's pretty much a full-time outside corner at this point. Any ideas of him moving to the slot doesn't really seem like anything they have any interest in doing. 338 coverage snaps. He allowed 29 receptions on 40 targets for 396 yards and two touchdowns. That's a catch rate of 72.5%. I looked at all the corners that played as many defensive snaps as him. There were 84 of them. Amongst those 84 corners, that catch rate of 72.5 ranked 74th. Now, remember that 84 number, because that's going to be the group that I'm comparing Jair Alexander to right now. 9.9 yards per target amongst those 84 corners ranked 80th. 1.17 yards per coverage snap ranked 57th. He also allowed two touchdowns, an interception, and a penalty. He had a missed tackle rate of 13.6%, which ranked 46th in the league amongst that same subset of corners. And he had the second worst run defense grade per PFF of his career, 61st amongst that subset of corners. Now, I know he's playing hurt for part of the year, had that back injury, has had shoulder issues, kind of up and down. He closed the season strong, I would say. But it's just not enough for the investment that they've made in him, Dad, is kind of how I feel about Jair Alexander's year. Had that great play against Dallas, obviously awesome. He's very vivacious, very vibrant personality. He's a leader in that locker room. But I think they're going to need more from him next year, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, they need him to be like a at least a top 10 corner in the league, not you know, middle. Bottom, bottom 10, bottom. honestly, by several metrics in terms of you're looking at things that control for the I mean, He's tackle. looking more like a bottom 10 second corner. By yeah, it, these it's tough. these measurements, it's tough because you know, really low in yards per target, so he's not making as many plays on the ball anymore. Uh, very low in yards per coverage snap, so he's not staying as sticky anymore. Definitely had some good games here and there, and I think the hope for Jair is that a system that will allow him to play more man coverage and allow him to play off ball less will get him into a position to play better next year. So that's I feel like how I feel about Jair. From last year, I would say a very poor year. 
a struggle of a year, but I still have hope for next year with this new defensive system. Next corner on the list, Eric Stokes. As tough as Jair Sisson was, I would say Stokes was probably tougher. He only appeared in three games, played defensive snaps in just two. So one of those, he only, you know, played four special team snaps and then was forced out of the game. He only played against Tampa and Carolina, which I would say were arguably the defense's two worst performances on the year. If you want to say the Giants as well, I will not. Fair enough. I'll add that one in as well, but only played against Tampa and Carolina and then was placed on IR. Missed an initial five games coming off of multiple season ending leg injuries in 2022. Came back and injured his hamstring, missed an additional seven games, then came back for two games, really didn't look right, and then was shut down the season after that. 110 total defensive snaps, just 8.7% of snaps on the season for the Packers. 99 is an outside corner, 8 is an, as a slot, so he's you know he's going to be an outside corner going forward. 69 coverage snaps. Now, 160 corners played at least 110 total defensive snaps. So I'm looking at essentially all the corners that played as many snaps or more than him. It's the subset I'm comparing him against. He allowed eight receptions on 10 targets for 112 yards. That's a catch rate of 80%. That would be 146th amongst those 160 corners. So not great. 11.2 yards per target is 154th amongst those 160 corners. And then 1.62 yards per coverage snap is 149. Now, the that wouldn't that, even that's not even good amongst linebackers. No, it's very poor. And you could argue it's like, OK, well, like, yes, like the games he played was the games that no one really was doing anything good for the Packers defense. It's like counter argument is all well, the games he played were the games we were getting torched in the secondary. So it can, you know, is it a chicken or the egg thing? I like yards per coverage snap is my favorite metric for a defensive player because yards per target, you could say, oh, like they're not getting targeted a lot. That's a good thing. So like, yes, they give up yards when they're targeted, but. The fact that they're in good coverage means they're not getting targeted very much. So, you know, you just have a low denominator there in the target. Like, that's also a good thing, but it's making their yards per target look more. Yards per coverage snap kind of, like, factors in that amount that, hey, they're also not getting targeted as much when they're out there. But pretty much by any metric, he was not very good. He allowed three touchdowns, had no picks, didn't have any penalties. The only real good thing you could say for Stokes on the air was... <laughs> you could say he didn't have any penalties because he was, wasn't close enough to make one. Yeah. Wasn't close enough to grab the receiver? Yeah, I mean, the only good thing you can say is he did not miss a tackle in his six tackle attempts. He did also have the best run defense grade of his career, which was 25th amongst those 160 corners. So there's that. But he also didn't, you know, have very many opportunities in the run game. So it's a small sample size. And if you want to say it's a small sample size on the coverage side as well, totally reasonable. If you want to say, hey, like, it's just two games. You really can't make any big, big conclusions out of it. I totally understand where you're coming from. But the fact of the matter is, with the data you have from 2023, it's really hard not to think they need a new outside corner next year, uh, outside year, unless we're going to talk about Carrington Valentine in a second, unless you want to look at Carrington Valentine there. Um, for Stokes, though, Dad, how did you feel about him in 2023? Because the numbers are really bad. Like, they are what they are. They're just not. It's hard to feel anything about him in 2023 because he played so little. I mean, yes, when he was in there, it was bad. So I guess the real take home is you cannot go into next season having to count on him. Yeah, 100%. You can't expect him to be a starting outside, a a starting level outside corner next year. If he is, it's gravy. That's how you have to look at it because you cannot pencil him in to be the guy he was his first year. We don't know if those injuries have permanently sapped him or if it's just like, hey, the hamstring injury he retweaked was really what was keeping him, you know, was giving him struggles, not necessarily the knee and the foot injuries he had. We just don't know. But I think don't think the Packers know either. 
And I don't think we're going to know until next year and probably not until several games into next year. So that's why I think we're going to talk about needs later. Corner's pretty high up there. Speaking of other corners, though, on to Keyshawn Nixon. Um, so not great for the first two corners on this list. And Keyshawn, you know, I think he's vastly exceeded the expectations we had of him when we added him. Like, we added him as a special teamer. And I think he's been more than that. He played in all 19 games for the Packers this season, 937 total defensive snaps. That was 74%. 752 of those in the slot and only 60 out wide. So he was our primary slot guy, if you didn't know. 633 coverage snaps. 75 corners played at least 630. If the the Packer player played like a good amount, I just went at the midway cutoff. So like if they played half the snaps on the season. So 60 corners, or sorry, 75 corners. He allowed 74 receptions on 94 targets. So not great there for 717 yards. That's a catch rate of 78, 79%, 78.7. That ranks 71st of those 75 corners. So that's not great. 7.6 yards per target ranked 44th, 1.13 yards per coverage snap ranked 48th. So below the bottom half of the league in most like yards per yards per rate metrics, essentially. Two touchdowns, one one interception and five penalties on the year. So I would say not a great year in coverage for Keyshawn. Um, he's definitely done more than you expected when you brought him in, but there's definitely room for improvement at that slot corner spot. There's room for improvement at most of these corner spots, it seems like so far. Had a missed tackle rate of 14.6%, which was 48th in the league. Had the worst run defense grade per PFF of his career, 63rd of those 75 corners. So bottom of the league uh, in run defense grade amongst corners. I just think for me... <sighs> It's hard because I think, you know, it's all about expectations. I just think that there is room for improvement at that spot. Yeah, so we haven't finished going through the group, but what would you say is a bigger need or a bigger corner safety? Or corner corner or slot corner? I would say slot corner because I think they've lacked a dynamic presence there. And I would, I just see what Isaiah McDuffie does for the Chiefs. And his ability to always be around the ball, make plays on the ball, I think is a more valuable position because an outside corner is obviously being able to shut down in one number thing. Number one, no one travels anymore with receivers. It just never happens. It's not a thing that almost anyone in the league does anymore. Even the top corners, they just don't do it. So outside number one, outside corner is not as valuable as it used to be. And if you're the number one outside corner, it's like, okay, you're going to go guard that side of the field. I'm going to go throw it over here. Like, I just won't throw it to you. That's fine. Like, I'll just throw it on this other side of the field. I'll throw it to the guy in the slot. It is what it is. And it's not like our outside corners have been particularly great. But I would say slot is somewhere where they're closer to the ball. They're able to make more plays. They're more prevalent in the run game. They're able to contribute in both both phases of the uh, the defense. And that's just kind of how I feel about it. What were you thinking? Yeah, I was thinking that in terms of the performance we were getting and where it is in the league amongst between our sort of outside corner group, which would be essentially Jair, Valentine, Valentine, and Stokes. We're getting a little bit closer to, you know, having at least middle of the pack kind of uh, performance. And the slot corner has been more towards the bottom quarter of the league. Yeah, in terms of I, what we're getting out of it. I think that's totally fair. And I think also part of the reason I feel like I'm leaning towards slot corner here is because this next corner I'm going to talk about, Carrington Valentine, 
when I was looking at the numbers here, I was I came away really impressed with what he was able to do. Now, the PFF grades are not very good, but the raw statistics, and a lot of these statistics are per PFF, just to source that again. Um, but he played in all 19 games for the Packers this season, but he only played more than three defensive snaps in 15 of those games. So four of those, he wasn't really contributing on defense. 846 total defensive snaps, 67% of snaps, 752 of those out wide, 24 in the slot. So he's pretty much just an outside wide corner. They played him a little bit in the slot in preseason. I don't really necessarily know if that's necessarily what's best for him. And I think he could be someone who could also really thrive in a press man coverage scheme that Halfley is going to run. Because, you know, long arm corner, big body, 537 coverage snaps on the year. 75 corners played at least 630. So it's the same 75 I was comparing Keyshawn Nixon against. And if you want to say, hey, like, you know, a slot corner is going to give up a higher completion percentage than an outside corner, that's also a very fair argument. Um, But anyway, Carrington Valentine, 40 receptions on 72 targets for 470 yards. That's a catch rate of 55.6%. Amongst those 75 corners, that ranks 13th. And keep in mind, this is a guy who's a first-year corner, seventh-round pick. In terms of yards per target, six and a half yards per target, that ranked 12th in the league. In terms of yards per coverage snap, 0.87 yards per coverage snap, that ranked 20th in the league. So he's top third in most of these yard yardage metrics. Uh, one touchdown, no interceptions, and just three penalties on the year. He certainly had some bad games. Tampa, or Denver was a real struggle for him. They just threw it to Cortland Sutton all game long. He didn't know what to do with it. Tampa that was probably was his worst game of the year. Tampa was also a struggle. Both of those games, I think he gave up seven catches on eight targets, if I remember, or sorry, six catches on seven targets. And against Denver, it was six catches on seven targets for 89 yards. Against Tampa, it was six catches on seven targets for 68 yards. So those two performances were certainly very rough. But on the season, his coverage was really good. And like I think that there is something very exciting there. I mean, we talked in the offseason and the preseason, it's like, hey, this Carrington Valentine guy, they're going to have to find a way to get him on the field. I'm telling you now, he, I, you, I could make an argument that he was their best outside corner this past season. Better than Jair, better than Stokes, better than Ballantyne. I, I'm just saying that's my argument. That, how do you feel it's about? Actually, pretty clear by the numbers. It's very clear. Actually, I would say yeah. he was far and away their best corner this season. I'm, you know what? I'm going to say it. Carrington Valentine was far and away their best outside corner this, their best corner this season. Um, the run defense if is. If they what it didn't is. get him as a seventh round steal. It think, would have of been what worse. The second, think of what the secondary would have looked like. Yeah, it would have looked much worse. Um, and his run defense is not great. He had a missed tackle rate of 11.9%, which was just 29th in the league amongst that same subset of 75 corners. Uh, but his run defense grade was really poor. It ranked 70th of those 75 corners. So that's something he's going to need to work on. But I think he has the mentality and the tenacity to at least stick his nose in there and be a tough tackler. Um, but yeah, Valentine, he was probably their best corner this year. And he's a rookie seventh round pick. And it really just makes just like, come on guys. Like we, Jair Stokes, well, Stokes injury related. Jair also injury related. It's like, we just need these guys to get healthy and we need these guys, hopefully in a new scheme that is a little more catered to their skill set. The Valentine's as well. I think he's more of a better press man corner than he is his own corner. I think all these guys, Valentine, especially I'm very excited about, but hopefully they can all raise their level. But yes, I would say Carrington Valentine was the most impressive corner on the year. Last corner on my list, Corey Ballantyne. The rest all just played a handful of snaps, so I'm not going to talk too much about them. Corey Ballantyne played in 16 of 19 games, only played in more than four defensive snaps in 10 of those games. 534 total defensive snaps, which is 42% of them on the year. 484 out wide, 18 in the slot. So what you're kind of taking away is 
they did not really have another guy they could have stuck in the slot if Keyshawn went down. So they're kind of lucky that Keyshawn was available almost every single game. So if they move on from Keyshawn and try and make an upgrade there, it's not on the roster right now because they seem to not want to put any of these guys in the slot when they have yeah. an option. Although you could argue, hey, it's just because they can't put Keyshawn out wide, so they got to put him in the slot, so they got to put these other guys out wide. Fair enough. But anyway, 325 coverage snaps. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you. Um, but I do think it's interesting to look at Ballantyne. When you look at it, 33 receptions on 55 targets. Now, 89 corners is the subset I'm comparing him against. Has played at least 534 total snaps. Of those 89, he had a, he allowed a catch rate of 60%. That was 31st of those 89. 7.5 yards per target was 48th of those 89. And 1.27 yards per cover snap was 74th. Now, you might be saying, it's like, hey, it's not great numbers, but it's really not that much worse than Jair and Stokes. It's, it's actually probably better than Jair and Stokes. And I'd, I'd say, yeah, it, it kind of was, um, which isn't, you know, great. But I would say what I took away from this season was, hey, we at least have some playable depth at the cornerback spot. Like Carrington Valentine and Corey Valentine were able to Carrington Valentine had a really good year. Corey Valentine was able to tread water out there at least. Like he was yeah, playing I mean, pretty well. When we started going through a stretch in the second half of the year where the the defense started getting better, the secondary was that was when Valentine and Valentine were kind of yeah. putting things it, together for a little stretch. Yeah. Had a missed tackle rate of thirteen point seven percent, which is forty eighth amongst those eighty nine. Run defense grade was just seventy eighth of those eighty nine. So again, they're gonna need better run defense from these corners, but First, they're going to need better coverage from these corners. Let's worry about the run defense later. But anyway, um, I would say definitely at least a solid replacement level corner. Dad, anything on these corners you wanted to talk about, or should I speed through these safeties? <laughs> are, we, are we getting faster and faster as the, uh, the uh, episode maybe, goes on? You know, you know I just, I, I'm, I'm in my fast-talking era, as they would say. But no, I, I would say corner-wise, I like the depth we have. I just think the top-end players we have need to play like top-end players. Yeah, which really comes down to Jair and Stokes. We traded Ray Rasul, so we had what we thought are were three good options yeah, as and, starting. And I corners. didn't want to talk about Rasul just because, but it doesn't but we, really matter. So going Stokes forward. basically was a lost year. He yeah. was hurt, came in for a couple of games, could barely play, looked bad. Lost. And I would year. say Jair was and Jair had a bad year, year and, and he only played nine games. Injuries. Like, kept coming back, couldn't get over them. The back problem, whatever happened in that collision in a practice, yep. kind of the second half of the year kind of fell apart. Though I was looking at his, his last few games No, he, he ended the season better. strong. Yeah, like, Unlike, I would say. Yeah, his last four games, Jair played pretty well. And uh, he only had like one missed tackle in his last like four or five games and generally was looking better um, at the end of the year. So maybe that was, maybe that's the real Jair when he's not hurt. And uh and they traded away Rasul. So they they were so then they were left with their a seventh round rookie and uh um and a un, and, and an Yeah. So and it's an like unfa. and and they may do. So that's the thing is that's why I think corner is gonna be a need because like we said, like Carrington Valentine had a great year. I don't know if it's even fair to expect a seventh rounder to play like that again. They need Jair to take another step, but we've seen that he's been hurt the past couple of years. Eric Stokes, we established, they can't expect much out of him next year, which is why I think corner the more I looked at this, I was like, man, corner might be the biggest need on this roster right now. But anyway, going on to safety, which might be an even bigger need, although I would say the safeties like surprised me a little bit. Let's start with Darnell Savage. He played in 12 of 19 games for the Packers this season, 701 total defensive snaps, 55% of those snaps. He played 429 snaps at free safety, 
147 snaps in the box and 109 snaps in the slot. So pretty spread out, but mostly at free safety, but definitely a diverse skill set in terms of playing all over the place. 419 coverage snaps, 60 safeties played at least 630 total snaps. So that's who I'm, you know, the players I'm comparing him against. He allowed 19 catches on 24 targets for 183 yards. It was a catch rate of 79.2%, which was 52nd of those 60. His 7.62 yards per target ranked 29th, though, and his 0.44 yards per coverage snap ranked 13th. Two touchdowns, one pick, no penalties. The big thing with Savage, missed tackle rate is 17.3%, which was 52nd of those 60. That's tough. And it matches the eye test. You watch him and you're like, dang, this guy struggles to tackle sometimes. Um, the run defense grade was actually surprisingly good though, despite that missed tackle rate. He was 19th of those 60, which shows like he's getting in the right position. It's just like, he just needs to yeah. make a play. The one that shines and in I, my mind I just is say that, that big that... McCaffrey, the big McCaffrey run against San Francisco. It's like, he has him lined up and he just doesn't make the play. And that missed tackle percentage is basically right on line with his career. Yeah. It's always I mean, around 17, 18. It's been that ballpark all five years of his career. We know what he is. We know what Darnell Savage is at this point. And the thing is, it's consistency. Down to down and game to game. Um, you know, you look at it and have these awesome performance like the wild card against Dallas or the game against Kansas City. And then he'll have just games where it's like, man, you are losing us games right now. And it's really frustrating from a guy that I was super high on coming out of the draft, a first round pick. And it's a guy well, that, and you a know, starter from the get-go is rookie year. Yeah. And I and think he got better just, his first couple of years. And to his credit, I would say he was definitely better this year than he was the past two years. But it's just not quite up to the standard that they would want, I would say. Moving down the safety list, Jonathan Owens. He played in 19 of 19 games for the Packers this season. He played an actual role on defense in just 15 of those and was the starting safety for the final 13 games of the season. Played almost 100% of snaps in every game except for the end of the Dallas game where they were putting their subs in. His 927 total snaps was 73% of the Packers' total defensive snaps, 434 snaps of free safety, 322 snaps in the box, and 137 in the slot. So, you know, kind of almost equal time between deep and in the box, which is, you know, interesting to see. He's got some versatility to him there. 580 cover snaps, so I'm comparing him against that same subset of 60 safeties. He allowed 26 receptions on 38 targets for 269 yards on the season, a catch rate of 68.4%, which ranked 31st amongst those safeties in the league, so just about average. 7.08 yards per target was 17th amongst those 60.46 yards per cover step was 19th. So, you know, an above average safety, four touchdowns, no picks, four interceptions, or sorry, four penalties. You'd like to see some more plays on the ball there, some more impact plays. But I would say, you know, missed tackle rate at 12.6%, which was 39th in the league. Run defense grade was not great, 48th of those 60. That was the only one where it was like really below average. But everything else I would say was around average for a safety, which is exactly what you would want out of Owens in terms of a guy you're bringing in to eat snaps at the safety position, I would say, is how you would uh, I would describe it, wouldn't you say, Dad? Yeah, and I think he, as as the year went on, he he was able to do more than we expected out of him. I think that's totally fair. And, and yeah. you know, he's, he has his, he, he definitely had his frustrating moments, you know, not being able to stick with Kittle there, but it's just the limitations you expect with a player that you're not paying high capital money to. Like if he was able to do those things, he would not be on the Packers. Like he, they would not have been able to acquire him. So it's one of those things where you just got to kind of take the good with the bad. But I think for the type of player that they were looking for in the off season, he, he met expectations and I would say even exceeded them. 
Like he was about an average, you know, replacement level safety on the season, I would say. Right, which is what they needed, uh, especially with Savage out for chunks of the year and having to move on um, from Amos. They they had to, you know, Tarverius more getting injured in the off season, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Rudy Ford were, missing time. Yeah, and Ford missing time as well. They were scrambling around looking for safeties that they could start for good chunks of games and play play a lot of a lot of snaps. Yeah, and he was an inning eater for them, and that was valuable. Uh, moving on though to Rudy Ford, he actually his numbers are really good. I don't. I was shocked his coverage grades were this good. He played in 13 of 19 games for the Packers this season. Played an actual role on defense in just nine of those. He start. It was the starting safety in eight of the Packers' first nine games, and then as injuries kind of took their toll on him, he played less and less, and was less and less effective. 626 total defensive snaps. That's 49 percent of snaps. 323 snaps at free safety. 190 in the box. 92 in the slot. 61 safeties is the subset I'm comparing him against. He allowed nine catches on 22 targets for 88 yards. Catch rate of 40.9%. That was number one amongst those 61 safeties in the league. Number one. Four yards per target. That was second in the league amongst those safeties. 0.25 yards per coverage snap. That was third in the league amongst those safeties. He was top five by a lot of these coverage metrics as a safety. One touchdown to two picks and two penalties. He had a missed tackle rate of just 8.1%, which was ninth in the league amongst that same subset of safeties. The only thing that was bad was his run defense grade, which was 43rd amongst those 61. But, you know, he really had a much better year than I thought. And by a lot of these metrics, he was borderline like top 10 safety. And I, you know, it's a shame that injuries hit him and he wasn't as effective as the season went on and he kind of lost playing time and wasn't able to, ended up ending the season on IR. But dad, Rudy Ford, like, a shout out Rudy Ford. If they want to bring him back and, and try it again, I I wouldn't hate it. Yeah, and, and he had a decent year in some of these matches last year as well. For a guy they brought in to be a special teamer. um, He can play. They've been able to get a lot out of him. Yeah. Him and Keyshawn, I mean, Rudy Ford even more, I would say, has been even more impressive than Keyshawn by these numbers. Um, the final safety on this list is Anthony Johnson Jr. He played in 14 of 19 games for the Packers this season, played an actual role in defense in just four of those. 334 total defensive snaps, which is 26%, 236 coverage snaps, played mostly at free safety. So 237 of those 330 snaps were all at free safety. So they did not bring him down in the box much at all. Um, or in the slot, just 54 snaps in the box, 40 snaps in the slot. When you look at the other players there, their distribution was a little more even. 92 safeties are who I'm comparing him against. Five receptions on seven targets for 60 yards. Catch rate is 71.4% was 60th of those 92. Yards per target was 59th, 8.6 yards per target, but his yards per coverage snap, seventh amongst that group. That was, you know, fairly impressive there. He was out there on the field a good amount and did not get targeted much essentially was what happened, which, you know, is at least something for a seventh round rookie. You know, miss right, especially because when, when, when you go on the field, substituting in as a seventh round rookie, they're gonna, you should have a flashing red sign over your head. Yeah. So he was, he was not like, he was out there on the field a lot. And when he was targeted, he was giving up yards. And so that's something he needs to work on, but he was at least able to not get targeted a lot. That's at least something he was in the right spot. It seems like, Based on those numbers, that's at least what that's telling you. Or at least that that's what that's trying to tell you. 
Now, the reason they probably didn't have him down in the box of the line of scrimmage much is because he really struggled tackling and defending the run. Um, he had a missed tackle rate of 27.3%. Now, it's a, it's a small sample size. What he, a, more than he, one out of four. He had 20 tackles and nine missed tackles, which is bad. But that was dead last of 92 safeties that we were comparing him against. Uh, dead, dead, dead last. 92nd. Uh, his run defense grade was 91st of those 92 safeties. So that's going to be something he's going to need to improve on if he wants to stay on the field. And also something he's going to need to improve on if he wants to stay on the team. Because you're not going to stay on special teams with numbers like those. That's uh, that's for sure. Um, but Dad, that makes up the safeties. Anything else? Uh, there's also Zane Anderson. He played just 14 snaps. And Benny Snappy played just three snaps. Anything else you want to say about safeties? Or should we talk about outgoing players and then wrap this thing up? I would say overall, the safety group is another one where you're going to be looking to add either free agent or the draft for some. I mean, they have some guys who can be like replacement starters who can give you some snaps when you need to, but you would like to get somebody who's more of a playmaker and be a starter. Yeah. And and I think that's where free agency is going to come in. We're going to talk about that, but there are definitely some some good safety free agents in this class. But Dad, let's talk about maybe some players that we're going to be losing this year. Who does it look like, just as we wrap things up, who are the unrestricted free agents, who are the restricted, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so in terms of outgoing players, of free, free agents, basically all the safeties except for Anthony Johnson Jr. Um, Rudy Ford is an unrestricted free agent. Jonathan Owens Dar- and Darnell Savage are all unrestricted free agents out of the Corner group, Keyshawn Nixon is an unrestricted free agent. Linebackers, Eric Wilson is an unrestricted free agent. Restricted free agents is just Robert Rochelle, and exclusive rights free agent is just Benny Sapp. So not only did the, you know, so they really need to add safeties because they only have one left under contract. So they already have to try to bring back guys who are free agents now um, just to keep the status quo. And so you got to decide. And I think they will bring at least one and maybe two back from this group, as well as signing uh, signing a free agent and maybe drafting two. So I think that that's kind of my guess. One splash free agent signing, maybe two draft picks, and bringing back one or two of the players from last year. Yeah, and by the numbers, it'd be like, hey, want to bring back Rudy Ford probably, but he is 30 years old, so... He's getting up there, and he missed a yeah. good chunk of this year to injury. So it's not exactly the no-brainer that it would seem like on its face. Savage, I think this it's kind of that time unless the price is right. But I would imagine someone might throw some more money at a former first-round pick that maybe they like coming out of college. And then Owens, I suppose you know, if 20... somebody else wants to pay him a lot, yeah. I, otherwise, I feel like Savage is the guy. Yeah, I mean, um, we know at, the Packers he's the don't youngest, like... He's the youngest one, too. Yeah, we know the Packers don't like giving third contracts out. It's just not really something that they do. They, and, and it makes sense. They're usually not worth it. Um, but, Dad, I would say, you know, it, it definitely seems like they're going to need to make some ads there. What about uh, what other unrestricted free agents are there? So um, Keyshawn Nixon in the corner group, who is 27 years old now. Eric Wilson in the linebackers, who's 30 years old now. Um, when you get out to the other groups. And so that's... And for those guys, it all, feels their, like their... It, it all feels like it depends on price, right? Like, I wouldn't necessarily yeah. not want any of them back, but it's going to depend on I'd be a little surprised to bring back like. Wilson at, eight, at at 30 years old. Um, I think, it, a bas- tier, I think but... that's a Bisaccia call. I think that's going to be like, yeah. does Bisaccia want him back? Unfortunately. But I, yeah, I wouldn't and, but... mind having Wilson back. Uh, I, You know, 
He can play after he recovered that fumble. Was like, man, that guy can play on my team any day of the week. I don't even care anymore. He's I know he's thirty, but he's a good special team. And one thing you look that is really striking when you look is like no defensive linemen or edge players. Yeah, that they got youth very up front, well set up in both of those question groups. marks in the back. Um, but Dad, yeah. who are their restricted free agents and exclusive rights free agents? Well, just Robert Rochelle as a restricted free agent and Benny Sapp as an exclusive rights free agent. And both of those guys played very little. You know, yeah. so like They're mostly six, special teamers. Six and three defense um, defensive snaps. So hard, hardly anything at all. I don't know. I don't think they have any sign that these guys are going to be contributors on defense. Yeah. And I don't know how many snaps they played on special teams either. Yeah, um, I, I'd imagine they'll bring Benny Sapp for camp, back for camp, but there's no guarantees on the roster next year. As an exclusive rights free agent, there's no downside to um, tendering him. Yeah. Um, so those are the free agents on defense. You know, it's mostly in the back end. And the thing is, none of these players are necessarily players we're like, wow, like, if we don't get this guy back, like, we're going to be in a tough place. They can kind of essentially... They can decide just based on what the price tag looks like. Speaking of that, though, Dad, who are some guys who might be cap casualties where the Packers could save money by not bringing them back next year? So the number one and I think player most people are talking about is Devondre Campbell. Um, he's got a $14.2 million cap hit um, in 2024. He's 31 years old, and he's coming off of an injury riddled and down season. Yeah. Um, in addition to the fourteen point two million this year, his current contract has him as um, a twelve point five million dollar hit in twenty twenty five and twenty twenty six. So, a cut this this year would save two point six million dollars on the twenty twenty four cap, but it would also save twelve point five million in each of twenty twenty five and twenty twenty six. It definitely um, feels like the writing's on the wall there, huh? Yeah. So keeping him one more year would essentially cost them an extra ten million over cutting him now. Keeping him two years would cost a total of nineteen point five million um versus cutting him now. So then you think about basically ten million a year to have him on for those two years. They cut him um so Yeah. The only thing I'll say is warranting that much. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'll say is before they were moving to a four three, I was like a hundred percent they're gonna move on from Campbell. The fact that they need three starting linebackers makes me like ninety percent they're cutting Campbell. But any other, or did yeah. you do you agree, or are there any other? These the most likely, especially because you know, like cutting him now saves twenty seven and a half million on the cap overall because because the cap rolls over. You should always be thinking about the total amount of savings against the cap rather than on a single year. But you also have to think about. When you cut a player, the amount of money you save, is that going to get you a player as good as the yeah. player you're cutting? So and don't that's think where, about – That's what comes you up, should I also, think. You, you have ahead. to basically forget about the money that's already spent. That's gone. The only reason it's counting against the cap is because they decided not – they paid it already. They just didn't put it on the cap the year they paid it. So you're not getting you're not getting savings on it's like like Bakhtiari's forty million dollar cap hit. Well, it's only forty because they pushed twenty of it to this year that they paid him years ago. Yeah, and I think the the big thing is like like you said with uh, like are you going to get a better player that comes up with this next guy that's kind of you know I don't think they're going to move on from him. But Preston Smith, like there are conversations to be had there, but especially now with Enigbare being injured, I don't think they can afford to move on from him. And he's still playing well, 
So like, I don't see a need. It's like, it's fine to play, to pay good players money. Like if they're playing well, pay them money. It's fine. It is what it is. Yeah. So press is 32, but he hasn't really shown a sign of any age-related decline. This was like his second best year by a lot of measures. His cap hit this year coming up is $16.5 million, And cutting him this spring only saves $2.5 million this year and 17, $17.5 half in 2025 and eighteen in 2026. So that's where it really kind of jumps up. Cutting him now would save $7.6 million in 2025. Um, but I guess the, the way to think about it is if we keep him this year, it only essentially costs an extra $12.4 million to have him for one more year. And if you keep him for two years, it costs $26.5 million. So if you cut him after 2025. So you're essentially getting what's been now a starting level edge rusher for like $13 million a year. Which is for the next you know, two years. That's honestly a bargain. Like, yeah. It's so it's like, so I, it, it's I, not I don't something see that's going to happen. I've seen people talk about it, but it's not something that's yeah, going to happen. It seems very unlikely. And then the last one that, well, at least I, I suppose you could have maybe talked about Kenny, though that seems like a restructure because he's got such a big cap hit. And people mentioned Jair, which has been like just shot down. It's just not going to um, happen, probably, right? Yeah. It, and, uh, the reason, have we're talking about this is million. Did, the reason we're talking about this is because he made that Instagram post that kind of looked like a goodbye post, but we just wanted to touch on this. It's almost certainly not going to happen, folks. No, and it's like, you know, goodbye to this year or whatever. Yeah, I, I, but uh, yeah, his cap hit this year is 24 million, about 26 in 2025 and 28 in 2026. Um, cutting him this year would actually increase his cap hit by 3.5 million for 2024 though it would save a lot of money in the future years. The cost of keeping him for 1 year is essentially 23 million versus cutting him in cost of 2 years is about 40 million versus um cutting him over the lifetime of the contract. Um so it's like uh starting hope, hope it gets back to the way he was a few years ago for 20 million a year as a starting corner. Yeah, cuz they they need him to and they also need to invest a corner. But anyway, this has been the defensive breakdown, the jumbo defensive breakdown, the big one of 2023 and then looking ahead to 2024. Big takeaways are a lot of people talk about the young talent on offense. There's a lot of young talent on that defensive line, that defensive front too. But as you move a little further away from the ball, there's more question marks. The corners, especially the top level corners, did not really perform up to snuff. There's a lot of room for improvement there, both hopefully moving to a new scheme improvement, but also perhaps improving this, like the slot corner spot and adding a new outside corner. Carrington Valentine played really well, to the and Corey Valentine played quite well, to the point where you feel like you have some good depth there. Linebackers, having to start three of them, you're probably going to need to add a few, because while Quay Walker had a decent year and has shown flashes, and there's definitely something there where you feel like you can squeeze more juice out of that, the other spots are maybe a little more question marks, and we might be moving on from some familiar faces like Devondre Campbell. Yeah, and Safety. I'd expect them to use, uh, just for the linebackers, draft two. You think draft I mean, like, two? Draft like a second rounder. Dad, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about the draft three. moving forward. Don't you worry. They, I think they're going to add at least two linebackers this offseason. And then safety. You'd say a lot of the guys they had this year played well above the expectation. But most of them are not going to be Especially back. Especially the expectations we had at the beginning of the year for the group. Yeah, but most of them are not going to be back. That's the other thing we should say. I mean, these guys way outperformed what the uh, uh, consensus expectation was going into the season. 
Oh yeah. A hundred percent. And that's why I was like, you know, I would say shout out Ryan Downer. And that's probably a big reason they brought him back. It's like, Hey, you had two guys pretty much off the street of safeties. You had a seventh round corner, the seventh round and undrafted free agent outside corner for most of the year. You had Jair dealing with injuries. You had Stokes with injuries. You had Keyshawn Nixon, who's more of a special teamer guy and you got serviceable play. Like that, that's pretty good. You did more with less. That's always, that's what is an important thing to do. But anyway, thank you so much for listening to this jumbo breakdown of the defense. Dad, before we finish, how would you rank the needs? One to, you know, by position group real quick for me, while I'll give you a second to think, I would say number one corner, number two, linebacker, number three, safety, number four, interior defensive line, number five, edge. What do you got? I would say number one, safety, number two, linebacker, number three, corner, number four, edge, number five, defensive line. Okay, we got a little bit difference, but it's going to be a lot of fun talking about those needs, talking about free agency, talking about the draft. And just come in and tune in to us. This has been the Jumbo Defensive Pod. We're going to do a Jumbo Offensive Pod next next week. Hopefully we don't let it get too far away of us and make it double Jumbo like we kind of made this one. But thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, come give us a follow on Twitter at Father Son Packers. Subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And until next time, we'll be doing an episode every single week over the offseason. They won't all be this long. Most of them are going to be around 50 minutes. But to break everything down, we wanted to give you all the detail we could. Until next time, go Pack Go. Go Pack Go.